Welcome back. My name is Lynn Azarki. I'm director of the Kids Bridge Tolerance Center and wrote a book about empathy. I'm obsessed with empathy. Empathy Advantage, Coaching Children to Be Kind, Respectful, and Successful. Through the empathy lens, we can be kinder to each other, more respectful, and a more inclusive community. I am thrilled to have my friend with us today, Dr. Nadia Ansari, a professor of psychology at Ryder University, and she was with me for part one where we did problems. This section, part two, is solutions. We want to figure out how we can make things better for Muslim youth, for all youth, because many youth today, sadly, are suffering from bias, harassment, intimidation. So thank you for stopping by. So welcome. Thank you. Nadia Ansari, doctor. So we had talked in the first session, part one, uh, problems. Now we want to focus on solutions. And of course, I am um, an empathy person. So I'd like to just spend a couple minutes through with the empathy lens. How can empathy, walking in the shoes, help a Muslim family today? We talked in part one about the, the bullying, the cyberbullying, the 24-7, all, not only Muslim youth, Asian youth, LGBT, Jewish youth, Baha'i, Sikh, uh, black and brown. I mean, who, who is not facing these kinds of things? How damaging it is to children at very young ages. So can we move forward um, with guides and coaching the people listening to walk in other people's shoes? What might that look like for a Muslim family today? I know you're raising two Muslim children. What, how can we help better help people today? I mean, that's a great question. I think um, the important thing to always keep in mind is that perspective taking um, is critical to understanding another person. Um, we know from the research that even just exposure to a person of a different group um, decreases discrimination and you know hate speech etc so we we know that empathy works it's just a question of how do we teach it and what tools can we uh, you know uh, use to to improve it so for Muslim families I think um, it's important to increase the communication within families and within the community um, and to share these uh, these stories um, that you know of discrimination and harassment, et cetera. Um, I think it's also important to um, take the perspective of other people from other groups. It's not just um, you know within this group. It's important to raise awareness and empathy towards all different social identities, all different people. And so I think um, it's important in, in general, and that schools are, I think, taking a much stronger role, hopefully, um, in um, promoting uh, social emotional learning and character development. And within that is um, empathy plays a major, major role. I see schools starting to lean into anti-bias now, um, not as young as I think we both would like it. Um, I think the teachers need a lot more training in, in this aspect. Again, we, not to be the man up thing, but to really pay attention to each child and their needs and to work as a team with the parents. Let's maybe dissect a, a Muslim family, and again, it could be any family with bias and prejudice, uh, developmentally. Let's, so let's start maybe with elementary school. So how would parents um, 
you know, one thing that I advise in my book is you meet around the kitchen table once a week. I know everybody's really busy. We're home a little bit more because of COVID. Hopefully COVID is gone. Like, what might that look like, these kind of conversations with an elementary school child getting bullied or maybe seeing another child bullied? Um, and so what does that look like, this conversation walking on in each other's shoes that they can more proactively help this child as they face the challenges as they leave the house? So I think um, what we mentioned in part one was increasing communication. And um, sharing a meal with somebody is a personal thing. There's a personal exchange of information. Um, families uh, go through their day. And again, that sharing of stories. Uh, so it's really critical to um, develop that sense of bonding and, and you know connection with each other and um, for parents to share their own stories of you know which we discussed in part one sharing stories of their own experiences with bias maybe in the workplace or um, growing up or at college or, or what have you and so by being vulnerable we also allow other people in our families to also be vulnerable and to uh, express what may be bothering them. So do you think by hearing their parents or caregivers' stories, they're better prepared to, they, to anticipate, this is gonna happen to you? Like what I say to the kids in, in uh, the Tolerance Center or if we're in classrooms, like you will be called a name tomorrow, in a week, in a month, you will see a child excluded. Like, it's time to prepare now. So these conversations around the dinner table, I think even in elementary school, you would advocate for that. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's great to have, you know, a hypothetical response. We can't always anticipate, you know, what's going to happen, but it's important to bolster kids and make them feel like they, will be effective in these types of situations. Um, I like that effective because you don't want them floundering, but to be effective, they have to practice. So what about an elementary school kid? Can you practice that this child sees something, hears something, that they practice in the home with their parents so that they are prepared. I think so, and siblings can be really helpful here too, through the sharing of stories or, you know, my friend, sharing of not only their stories, but of their peers. Mm -hmm. I know of a girl who this happened and here's how mm. she responded. Mm. And so I, I think that that can be uh, very helpful. So let's intersect now what we talked about briefly in part one, ethnic identity, and religious orientation. So the research says this empowers and strengthens a child. Elementary school, when, when do they start learning about Islam and multiculturalism and other religions? How, how early should parents, I mean, if they're not, if they don't belong to a mosque or they don't belong to a synagogue, when should parents start to, their benefits, to impart this uh, religious heritage identity strength? Well, I think it's, I think each family has to do what's natural for them, um, and um, it's always best to start early. Um, but you have to do what's uh, what's the best fit for 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 your family. 
Um, and I think that um, just like with ethnic identity, these are things that sort of come naturally. Right? These are, oh, this is our traditional food that we eat at this time during this holiday. Mm -hmm. um, we believe in this practice and not that practice. So um, I think it's just something that organically happens within families. Right. But to recognize that it, it, it can add dimensions to an individual's identity, and that also leads to higher self-esteem. Absolutely. So now I'll throw you a curveball. Middle schoolers, this is the toughest thing we'll probably discuss. So, right, you don't want to talk to your parents, they're embarrassing, um, they know everything, independence, and it's a very tumultuous time for a middle sure. schooler. So, how for a child who doesn't want to talk to you or look at you or spend time with you, is there any way any parents can really infuse this pride of? you know, religion, heritage, ethnic identity? I think that's where uh, community comes in, mm. where if parents can help foster relationships with other families mm -hmm. and spend time with other families, and if they're lucky enough, their kids connect and become friends. Good point. Then that, that source of strength can come from the peer network, because as adolescents, you know, comes in, we see a shift away from parents and a shift towards peers because they are spending most of their days right. and time with their peers, right. much more than with parents. So if there is a connection with other families within the community um, that they can um, foster and, and develop those relationships, I think it's, it's extremely valuable because then you have children who share behaviors and thoughts and practices and they can help, e help each other navigate those situations. That was a brilliant answer. I love oh, that. For a curveball. <laughs> well, middle schoolers, right? I, you know, they don't, just the things that I hear associated with Kidsbridge, you know, they, the children are grunting. They're not even talking to you. And my kids, how was your day? Grunt, you know, I don't know. So um, in any event. So let's now lean into high school because now high schoolers are turning a little bit more into human beings. And so um, I think that there, there's more that families can do, again, again, back to the ethnic identity, that not only the pride, the meals, the heritage, the, the holidays, but how about giving back? Can a family um, do something for Afghan refugees? Can a family, like what can, they role model, right? They're role models sure. to their high schools. What kind of things? could they do as a family to give back and inspire this kind of pride? Absolutely, and I mean, for high schoolers, service is always an important element that, you know, volunteer work, et cetera, so um, families can, can do that together. Um, so I think that essentially what's developmentally changing in, you know, from elementary school into high school is the idea of um, uh, identity formation getting stronger mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and also the ability to abstractly reason and see oneself within a community and so that they recognize that their identity may not be something that's valued by everybody in society. Indeed. And so it's important to gather those experiences and relationships with 
other folks who do value you so that it can help um, bolster self-esteem. Right. Um, so, you know, recognizing that your identity or a facet of your identity may not be valued is, it can be difficult. And going back to something you said earlier, you know, the idea that you will be called a name at some point. Mm -hmm. There are some people who are fortunate enough for various reasons not to. Right. But for the vast majority of people with marginalized identities, it will likely happen. And so, that fear, that anxiety, that knowledge is what makes bias-based bullying particularly damaging. And we know that it's more damaging than other forms of bullying because the individual expects that future incidents will happen because their identity is what it is and it's a stable characteristic of who they are. Right. One of the most surprising things I learned early by looking at the research is that in a system of bullying, you have uh, victims who we call targets now, bullying the name callers, but in the system of, say, 100 people, the majority in this bullying system are bystanders. bystanders. And they are the majority, and they are doing nothing. They are bystanding. So that when people actually see that the those, and, and we're not supposed to use the word bully, those who bully, those who cause harm, are in the minority, it should give high schoolers or people in office situations the power to do what was right. So let's take a scenario in high school. Uh, a Muslim um, uh, girl is wearing hijab, and I read many stories of this, I'm sure as you do. Uh, the kids uh, pull it off and they tease her and they mimic her. So what should a high schooler do? This is something a high schooler witnesses in the, in the hall. So what is the, the right system for this child, what can they do? And sometimes he, he, she can't do that by themselves. What are the different avenues upon which to, to remedy this, this situation? Well, I think it's important to recognize that the high schooler doesn't need to be Superman or Superwoman and jump into the situation right. uh, or do something that they're terribly uncomfortable doing by themselves by themselves right, right so it's important to recognize that there are other things that you can do um, and let's be clear a bullying situation would not be a bullying situation if there are no bystanders so if people are not standing around then the individual who's bullying or perpetrating the bullying doesn't get the effect mm. right because it's based on all these people viewing this power dynamic, the, mm -hmm. you know. So it's important to, if you don't feel like you can jump in and stop it, you can run and get an adult. You can, maybe if the incident was uh, difficult for, you know, again, somebody to jump in, you can go to the target afterwards and say, I saw what happened to you, and I'm really wonderful. I'm really upset about it, right. and and you know what can I do to help? Um, that sort of empathy is really critical um, in letting the target of the bullying the bullying situation know that they are a valued member of that school community, and that is the message that we need to get across because. Um, 
you and I have talked about this um, this report, the Hayton Schools Report by yes. Southern Poverty yes. Law Center. Yes. What they did in that report, they, they surveyed teachers, and teachers talked about Hayton School, and what they said was that the majority of hate incidents go undisciplined. Mm. And so that is really um, a terrible outcome because what it does is it tells the target of the bullying that you are not an important part of our school community and that there are people who are important but you're not one of them. Right. And so when a bystander goes to a target afterwards and tries to say, yeah, I'm really sorry this happened to you, you know, how can I help? Or, you know, even sometimes you can anticipate that aggression is going to happen, that a situation is escalating, you know, right. towards a bullying situation. Right. You could say, hey, so-and-so, I know uh, Mr. Smith was looking for you earlier. Um, he asked me to come find you. Right, you can diffuse the situation by, you know, there's, right. so there's a lot of different ways to diffuse the situation or try to remedy it afterwards by letting the person know that they are important. Right, so in, in what I've read, the research, one of the most effective strategies to disrupt the system is active listening. Just one person othered at home, feeling so isolated that just one person picking up the phone can, can almost sometimes save a life. So that's really important. And at Kidsbridge, and I know you've heard this word, upstander, a bystander who takes action, stands up and speaks out. So. Absolutely, and we need more upstanders because if we think about bullying, it's important also, I think we may not have defined bullying for, for listeners and um, you know, yeah. in, in our solutions yeah. part. So we want to keep in mind that bullying has three parts, right? Yes. An intent, a malicious intent to harm. Yes. An imbalance of power such that the person can't defend him or herself, and that there's a repetition or a pattern of abuse. Over time, yeah. So if we can break the chain in any of those three parts, right. where empathy can come in, right? right? And, um, you know, um, that person can um, try to diffuse that power differential or diffuse mm -hmm. the situation, um, you know, then again, we might have a better way to uh, address the problem. I think also to back up implicit in your thoughts were a team. Be a team with your school counselor. Be a team with the bus driver. If it happens on the bus, your parents, or your peers, your friends. Right. You don't have to do it alone. And I think that makes people a little bit bolder. And then, of course, practice, practice, because it will come, it will happen. And so at Kidsbridge or in the home, skit scenarios, what would you do? Right, right. right. So I'd like to lean into a new topic, literature. I know, and we know from research, that literature and stories, walking in other shoes, creates empathy. And I think we need to we could talk about media for an hour, but media and, this, and the cell phones is really shutting down, tamping down empathy that it is actually declining. It's been measured for college students and high schoolers and then behind so to establish empathy. How can we use stories, literature um, to fix some of this, to fix the problem of bias discrimination? Do you, do you have books that you have used with your family or that you use your college professor that might be creating empathy for your college students? Because I think this is, 
job one is really to feel and to care for others, of course, for yourself and others, and then upon which that you take action. But if you're not feeling for others and caring about others, you're not inclined to do anything. Absolutely. And I think that goes back to, you know, your you and I both have a very similar focus of early prevention. And mm. this is where storytelling can can make a, a, a really big impact. Where stories involve, you know, protagonists who look different, who are not necessarily, you know, uh, Caucasian, but have different racial and ethnic backgrounds and different religious identities. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is the it, that's growing in in volume and and in diversity. You know that um, now there are far more books that have different protagonists and different um, looking heroes and heroines in there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I remember a time Barnes and Noble. I I walked. This was I don't know maybe seven eight years. I walked down the aisle and. They were all faces of white children. I think there was one black or brown person, and I went to the, I won't name the bookstore, although I already did, and say that you need to do more than this because a child is other, not seeing themselves represented there. But I just wanted folks listening to know that literature early, as early as board books, to show pluralism and, you sure. know, different ethnicities can be strong. And, and now, for example, there are books on Ramadan. So those books don't necessarily need to be for Muslim families. So non-Muslim families can buy those books and talk to their kids. Oh, you know, there's, a, you know, let's talk about this holiday that Muslims are going to be, you know, celebrating. And here's the purpose for the holiday and the sort of the the spirit of the holiday. Right. And so, sort of having this um, appreciation and respect for diversity um, is really important. And then goes back to what you were saying earlier about right. enhancing empathy. So parents can take this role and maybe recommend books, go to the library, order books that teach about other religions uh, exactly. and the golden rule and such. So for our parents, caregivers, teachers listening now, what have we not, not touched upon? How do we better and earlier, because we're real, as prevention people really advocates for earlier, what other advice can we give to people to help push back bias and discrimination and make the children who who are young now that rise up, that they can be maybe live in a world where there's less less of this, less more more commonality, more trust, more more less otherness. I mean, I it's sure. it's a world that I when I was in college I thought I would see today, and and I am disappointed. So I think we we all need to do more. What other things can people listening do? to learn more about Islam, the pluralism that you adopt. Um, what else can people do to participate? So a lot of my scholarship has focused on schools. And I think it's, um, it's an important part of our anti-bullying approach, and particularly for bias-based bullying. Mm -hmm. I think we need um, more substantial teacher training so that teachers feel effective in intervening when a hate incident happens. And I think too often um, that training doesn't happen in sufficient depth. We also need anti-bias training 
for educators and administrators um, to recognize bias and to also uh, engage in more culturally responsive teaching practices. Mm -hmm. So I know um, Institute for Diversity and um, uh, ID IDSJ. Uh, IDSJ. IDSJ, the Institute yeah. for uh, <laughs> Teaching Diversity and Social Justice. Wow. Um, I so, didn't know they exist. That sounds fabulous. Yeah, so th okay. they, they undertake anti-bias teacher trainings to um, work on developing more culturally responsive teaching practices. Um, so schools really have um, a lot of work to do, in my view. Right. I think also there's a lot more resources out there um, for Muslim families to access. So for example, oh, t just to backtrack, ING, Islamic Networks Groups, mm -hmm. they have toolkits for teachers to, um, right. to uh, teach uh, Islam in a more, um, um, a more balanced fashion and to eliminate or reduce misinformation about Islam. So there are toolkits for teachers. Um, the Institute for Social Policy and um, Social Policy and Understanding ISPU, they have toolkits um, for uh, for families. Family Youth Institute also mm -hmm. um, also uh, have some toolkits on bullying and resources for parents. Wonderful. So there is information out there, it's just about finding it and accessing right. it. But to, with today's internet, I think you know parents and adults can find these things uh, easier. Children, teens can explore this and find these resources that everybody can do something. So I'm hoping that with these solutions, there is so much more we can do that people listening will be inspired to do, don't, you don't have to do all of this. Do one thing, maybe once a week with your family. Um, listen to your children, hear what they're hearing, um, and, and have an open door to them that if they are suffering or they are witnessing um, an incident of bias. So you know, I think as I know, that when you're a bystander and you're witnessing a girl's hijab being, or you know, all Muslims are terrorists when you hear that stereotype and you don't do something, there is damage to you, psychological damage to you as a bystander. Sure. So don't think just because your kids are not being affected as a part of they society, they are, which is why it's incumbent upon all of us to, to take this seriously and do more for our children. So there are a lot of resources and things that, that families can do, I think. Absolutely. Good. And your book has really quite a lot of, uh, you know, you break it down. You have a lot of information for teachers and a lot of information for parents. And so there are, it doesn't have to be a, a massive undertaking. It could just be some small steps that, you know, uh, that sort of make your orientation um, you know, more sensitive to, um, to bias. Well, thank you for that because yes, the Empathy uh, Advantage book, preschool, elementary, middle, high school, college, that it drills down to what are the things you can do. And the book is full of tips and resources that, you know, if you can just do one thing, do that one thing. Mm -hmm. So with the magic wand, we hope that when our children grow up, that they're going to feel more included and um, things are, we're multicultural society and we, we are just uh, treat others as you would like to be treated. 
So thank you for helping me explore solutions, and I want to thank you. So thank you for joining us today for solutions. Um, we hope that you will take some of our tips and suggestions to help all of our children and reduce bias and discrimination for all of our children. We are one society. So this is Lynn Azarki with Dr. Ansari signing off saying thank you and um, have a nice day and thank you for joining us for solutions for reducing bias and discrimination. Have a great day. Thank you.